Okay, friends, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray, and then we can jump right in. Father, we thank you that we can spend time studying your word together. I pray that you'd be with us as we look to uh, the end of the New Testament in the last couple of classes that we have here. Uh, May we savor our time together. And Lord, I pray uh, that as we start to shift focus of what's going to come next, uh, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to dive into your word to see uh, how applicable and how relevant it is for our lives. And may we be a people who are changed because your word is guiding us and we're living out its principles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just kind of by way of announcement for you guys, I'm going to announce this during the service too. We're going to be done with the New Testament survey, which means that we will have surveyed the entire Bible over a period of a year, which is huge, great celebration. Uh, After New Testament survey, after our Revelation class, I'm going to open up two Sundays where we will go ahead and have a question and answer from Bible survey. So any question that we covered, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, any of those books, we'll do our best to cover those um, questions as best as we can. So we're going to need people to send their questions in so that we have some to work with. And then my hope is to have half the time be questions that are already sent in and half the time questions that are just coming up from people that are here in class together. Um, So that's going to be the two Sundays after New Testament survey. And then we're going to do a 13-week seminar on biblical manhood and womanhood. What does it mean to be a man made in God's image and a woman made in God's image? So That is what is coming up for our core seminars. Uh, We want to let you know to keep your eye out for that. Start thinking of questions, writing them down. You can email them to me. I'll put a link in this week's email where you can just go ahead and drop questions, kind of like a comment board, um, so that we have a, a place to gather all of those pieces of information. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. All right. So as we come to First Thessalonians, we're actually going to start by thinking of what Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray. And he uses these words. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we're all quite familiar with these words. But here's the question. Do you think it will ever happen? Do you think it will ever happen? that heaven will come to earth, that what God has done in his kingdom will be done on earth, heaven and earth, that he will carry out both of these tasks. Do you think that there's going to be a time where God's will will be done on earth and in heaven? As we end the, the near, or we come to the near end of our survey of the New Testament, we're now turning to the books of First and Second Thessalonians. The last few weeks, we've looked at letters in the New Testament that have been written about false teachers. So we've been thinking about false teachers, how to spot them, what to do with them. And now we turn to Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, and we're going to continue to have in mind various errors in the church. But we'll also consider Paul's emphasis on the fact that Jesus is coming again. When all things that are false will be forever done away with, and the true light of the glory of Christ will shine forever. 
So we're taking a turn from false teachers. It's not that it comes out of our sight, right? It's still kind of in the purview of what the Thessalonians are going to be dealing with. But we're turning from uh, an emphasis on false teaching to now an emphasis on the second coming of Jesus. <clears throat> so as we consider the purpose and background of this book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, um, are going to set the context Uh, that Paul led to write this letter. So in verse four, he says, we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So Paul had preached the good news in the large city of Thessalonica and founded a church there during his second missionary journey. Okay, it was his second missionary journey. We can actually see this in Acts chapter 17. Oh, just a, a side note, as you're reading through the book of, uh, books of the New Testament, a great thing to do especially with the Pauline letters, is to go to Acts chapters 13 through 28 and think about where Paul was going and what time he was spending in different locations. It kind of gives us a a better context of the writing, right? So you're looking at Philippians. You want to look at Acts chapter 18 and see what happened in the city of Philippi. You're reading Ephesians. You want to read Acts 19 and 20 uh, because not only are you going to see what happened, you're going to see how Paul left and what he had done in that work. So uh, really great book, a uh, way to think about looking at those books of the New Testament. I, I recommend always going back to them before you read through those books. Look through Acts 13 through 28. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 17, uh, we know that Paul spent a few weeks in Thessalonica and that they were some of the most fruitful weeks that he had uh, in his missionary journey. It says in Acts 17, 4, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Okay, so the gospel was not only reaching the Jews in the city, it was reaching the Greeks in the city and the influential women of the city, which proved to be a problem in other locations. But after uh, after that, the church faced persecution And believers smuggled Paul out of the city by night. Uh, Paul left abruptly and without having spent much time among them. And he had never finished teaching the basic matters of Christianity. And the church's foundations were not complete and solid. Several strange problems had grown up after his premature departure. Apparently, some individuals in Thessalonica opposed this new religion by accusing Paul of being a money-grubbing self-promoter. How ironic is that? Money-grubbing self-promoter, right? Because that seems to be the problem in most of Paul's missionary journeys is that he encounters people who are money-grubbing self-promoters. <laughs> uh, so that's what they were accusing him of. And as soon as circumstances became difficult, they had to sneak him out of town. Uh, but there were also doctrinal difficulties, Chiefly, the Thessalonians worried that if a Christian died before Jesus' return, that he or she would be lost forever. So the idea was that they were saved, but they weren't being saved, right? So uh, they they were concerned that they had 
good standing right now, but that it wasn't an eternal standing. So Paul sent Timothy to find out how the Thessalonian church was doing and if they still held to the word that they had heard from him. So Timothy returned with a good report, and Paul writes this letter around 51 AD to defend his ministry among them, to clarify the basic doctrine about death and the second coming, and to reassure the Thessalonians with hope. So if we were to think of the kind of themes of the book of 1 Thessalonians, we have a few things, right? We've got the idea of uh, doctrine, specifically about death for the Christian, right? Not, not Jesus' death, but death for the Christian, and the second coming. And we're also thinking about reassurance through hope. I think I'm going to have to clean this board off pretty good. It's a little dirty. (laughs) So to see how we did that, we're going to look at an outline of the letter and see how it's structured. So you'll see this in your handout there. First Thessalonians basically falls into two parts. Chapters one through three, where Paul's defending his ministry. He opens the letter and prays for the Thessalonians, expresses confidence in their salvation. Then he describes his ministry among them, defends it against false accusations. Uh, He reiterates his desire to visit them again and recounts Timothy's good report. Uh, And then he concludes that section with a prayer, right? So we've got chapters one through three. Uh, If we were to think of this in structure. Hey, look at that. That's a clean side. Maybe it's just my marker. So ministry. And we've got chapters four and five that are going to be the second part of the book, which is Pauline. Anybody remember Paul's kind of emphasis? He usually has something to say about doctrine and then what comes after doctrine. Living, right? So he's going to give them some emphasis of how they can live in hope in chapters 4 and 5. So he's, he's helping them as they're thinking about this living to respond uh, to their weaknesses and their failings. First, he reminds them that they need to live lives pleasing to God, that their emphasis as they think of the situations in their life, that they need to be driven by the motivation to please God. Then he's going to spend about a chapter on the main doctrinal exposition that the letter is known for. That's death and the second coming of Christ with final judgment. Okay, so his purpose in all of this is simply to be encouraging, to encourage the Thessalonians. As he writes in the middle of the section in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words, right? Why are these doctrinal truths in place? So that the Thessalonians can encourage one another. And he concludes, uh, as he does with many of his letters, instructions and greetings in chapter 5. 
So that's the basic structure. We break down to chapters one through three, Paul's personal defense. Chapters four and five, uh, ways to live in hope in light of doctrinal truth. As we dive in to consider these words more carefully, we're going to see that there are, again, three major themes. The first being uh, looking at Paul's pastoral ministry. And then we're going to see the basic signs of the Christian life. And the second main theme, basic signs of the Christian life. And then the third is the second coming, thinking about teaching on the second coming. Uh, In all of this, our focus should be on better understanding what our lives should look like in light of Jesus' soon and certain return. What should our lives look like in light of Jesus' soon and certain return? So let's consider the major themes. First, Paul's pastoral ministry. Again, the the first half of the letter is mostly about Paul and how he he ministered among the Thessalonians. What I'd like to do is take an overview of what he says and identify from it seven key signs of Paul's ministry. And by extension, any genuine Christian ministry. Okay. But these aren't just things that we should look for in a godly pastor, but signs that should characterize all of our lives as servants of the, of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is not just what should a pastor look like. This is what should a Christian look like as we serve the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because we're all called to serve. Now, that's not to diminish the uh, responsibility or accountability that a pastor has. We need to rightly emphasize that according to scripture, right? There's James 3, that there's double accountability for those who teach. Um, But this is to normalize the idea that all of what we look for in godly leaders should be seen in godly Christians, okay? So no superior Christian based upon their service to the Lord, right? That's why I like to say, I am just a normal guy, okay? I often hear that from people. Uh, When they have conversations with me, they're like, you're a pastor? Yes, I'm a pastor. They're like, you're just so normal. I think that's a nice thing. I'm going to hold on to that. <laughs> Maybe it's not a nice thing. I don't know yet, <laughs> but I, I like it. So I'm going to hold on to it. <laughs> okay, so the first genuine sign of Christian ministry, prayer. The first genuine sign of Christian ministry is prayer. Ooh. Apparently I shook this marker up just right. This is the first sign. Paul prays for these young Christians. In fact, his prayer constitutes on the most constant and reoccurring aspects of the letter. He thanks God for what he's already done in the church, and he asks him to still do more. Have you thought about your prayer life like that, friends? When we come to prayer, we... We sometimes are asking the Lord to do things that we feel like he hasn't done, right? Isn't that true? We, we think, Lord, I want you to do this, so this is what my request is of you. A great way to start your prayer is to thank God for what he has done, to recognize who he is and what he has done, and then to ask him to still do more. It kind of uh, anchors our hearts and our minds, 
in the reality of God's character, of his faithfulness, so that we can live in light of these requests and we can make them from a humble heart with a right posture. Look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Another example, if we look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, there Paul says this, he says, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see your face, to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Note how Paul characterizes his prayer. He says that remembering before our God and Father, chapter 1, verse 3, their work and faith and love, work and faith and love, Praying for others is considering evidences of how God's spirit has been at work in them and thanking God. When you pray for others, consider how the spirit of God has been at work in them and thank God for that. And it's also considering their needs and directing these requests to the Father. It's amazing to think that when we are meeting with God individually, we can come before him and intercede for our brothers and sisters in Christ, which this book teaches us is a selfless and generous way to spend our time with the Lord. And know how Paul prays for them in light of the second coming. He prays that they would be holy and blameless at his coming. We should learn from Paul because he focuses his prayer on what is most important, that is what is eternally lasting. The emphasis is not so much on their circumstances, but on their faith, their love, and holiness. So that's a great model for our prayers. So that's the first sign is prayer. The second sign of of Christian ministry is self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. Paul, in his missionary journeys not least in his trip to Macedonia, was willing to sacrifice his own safety. We we can see that. He sacrificed his own safety. He was attempted to be stoned multiple times. He was shipwrecked. He had gone to places that were dangerous. He did not benefit by going to these places. (laughs) Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul 
did not preach the gospel to the Thessalonians with selfish concern. He didn't do it for his own gain. He did it with pure motives to please God, not men. So do we only share the good news with others when it's convenient? Do we only speak of Jesus when we're confident it won't diminish our reputation? Or are we willing to sacrifice our standing and our comfort for the sake of the gospel like Paul? Third, this is going to be kind of an interesting sign, and I'll explain it. But the sign of Christian ministry is what we call a motherly love. You're like, motherly? Paul's not a woman, right? So what do we mean by this? Motherly love is a sign of genuine Christianity uh, in ministry. Paul writes in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share not with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The mother love is gentle, not harsh. It's in the way where there's this affectionate desire not only to provide for them, but to give of yourself to them. He did not take from them, but he was delighted to share with them. You think of the characteristics of of a positive mom, right? A, a godly mom. You would think they are people who sacrifice. They are people who are ready to just give of themselves. Don't worry. We'll even it out. Fourth is fatherly integrity and encouragement. Okay, fatherly integrity and encouragement. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, it says, You are a witness in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So even as Paul instructs us on the purity and care that should characterize all of us as we speak to other Christians, He does so by giving the way of an analogy that comes from parenting with wisdom and guidance. So Paul assumes that a godly father encourages, comforts, and urges his children toward godliness. So there's fatherly integrity and encouragement. Fifth is a desire for fellowship. desire for fellowship. Paul wanted to be with these believers. They were not just his friends. They were his spiritual family. So in in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, but since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Several times, Paul mentions his desire to return and see them. In the next chapter, he repeats, we also long to see you, 3 verse 6. And in chapter 3 verse 10, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. 
Such a desire for fellowship is another evidence of genuine ministry. Think of God's kindness in designing us this way. The more we mature in ministering to people, his people specifically, the more we desire to spend even more time doing so. God shapes the desires of our hearts the more we soak our hearts in his word. You can't escape Paul's love for the Thessalonians when you read this letter. It's challenging. So if you want to grow in your love for your fellow church members here at Hebrew and Church of Hope, I'd encourage you to read this letter a few times this week. It only takes 10 or 15 or 20 minutes to actually read through the entirety of 1 Thessalonians. And as you read it, I want you to ask this question. Do I love and cherish my church the way that Paul loved and cherished the church that he had only spent a few weeks of a month with? Remember, he only spent a few weeks with them and he loved them like this. Is that the same way that we love our church members? So Paul's love should serve as an example to us. Sixth, this might be my favorite, joy. We get to serve the Lord. We get to. When we minister faithfully, joy results. Several times Paul says that he rejoices because of the Thessalonians. In chapter 2, 19 and 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, in verse 9, he says, What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? A godly pastor or elder, a godly Christian, is one who finds evident joy in knowing and leading the flock. Knowing and leading the flock. Knowing and leading his people. Finding joy in being with other Christians. It's such a joy to be together. And the seventh and final sign of Christian ministry is hope. Hope. Paul has hope for these Thessalonians. His hope isn't in them that they'll endure on their own. His hope is in the electing God who has chosen them. Chapter 1, verse 4. That's what he says. And above all, he hopes for Christ's return. Look at chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may He may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul's ministry is characterized by hope for the Thessalonians, because he bases it on his hope in God's promise and Christ's return. So we can use all seven of these marks to reflect on our own ministry in the church. Ministry is not just for pastors and elders. It's for all of us. And so Paul's example is useful to all of us then. Why do we love others in this church? Paul's most practical motivations seem to be that he wanted a front row seat to observe the supernatural power of God at work in the hearts of these believers so that he could rejoice before God because of them. I just want you guys to think about that for a second. Every week, 
When you come to church Sunday to Sunday, you sit in a class like this, or you sit in the auditorium and you worship with other Christians, you sing songs, you pray, you hear the word preached, you get to pray in groups at every now and then with other Christians. Guys, every week, as you look at the other Christians who gather with us, you're seeing the supernatural power of God on display. You're seeing him at work. Those aha moments, right? Like think of the baptisms that happened a couple of weeks ago. Those four people, James, Shelby, and Stephanie, are such an encouragement to us. They didn't know the Lord. They came here. They just sat through, guess what? Ordinary preaching. They just heard the word proclaimed. And God used that to change their hearts and their minds so that they would trust in him to be saved. What an incredible testimony. Just normal things we do every week leading to salvation. That's supernatural. You know, we often have mixed motives when it comes to serving the church and serving people. Sometimes we like to think of uh, church as a way that we can avoid being with people, right? Think of like what happened in COVID, right? With the, like it was a weird season, right? This is not shaming anybody, right? We all did this. But the idea of watching church through a stream on a website and not being with those people so that I could be in the comfort of my couch. That was kind of nice for a little while, wasn't it? Put your slippers on and kind of like enjoy sitting on the couch, sipping coffee. I enjoyed it for two weeks. (laughs) That was all I could do, all right? After that, I was like, I got to be with these people. I miss these people. I'm lonely. I'm, I'm stuck with my wife and my newborn, right? And the baby's crying all the time and I'm ready to lose my mind. That happened. But there was something else that happened also. As we came to a time where it was now normal for people to kind of reintegrate, people stayed home because they'd rather sit on the couch. They'd rather avoid being with other Christians. That is the total opposite of the fruit that we see that Paul's talking about in, in genuine Christian ministry. I think it was at least four or five times through this letter, he says, I want to see you face to face. There's nothing like it. So while it was useful, it definitely showed us that there was something better. Something that's best is being with and rubbing shoulders with people. Even when it feels like it's hard. Even when people treat us like they're projects. Have you ever felt like that? I've felt like that as a pastor, where I've been the project of church members. It's like, ooh, here's a young guy. We can shape him. We can get him to do what we want him to do. That once somebody said, oh, I know how to get, get to you. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to your mom, and then you'll do whatever your mom does. <laughs> says, and I said, well, that's a surefire way to get me to not do what you want me to do. Ask her. <laughs> and she said, no, no, he's, he's absolutely right. If I say it, he's not going to do it. <laughs> right? that's, that's just the way it works sometimes, right? But we, we maybe at times felt like projects. Maybe at times we felt like, an annoyance to others. That's a little bit of conflict and chaos, but remember what the gospel does. It takes us as we're people from all sorts of different backgrounds, 
ages, settings, what do we do? We unite together under a commonality that extends beyond all of that. Where's our joy? In that gospel, together. And so the church is called family. We're a family that loves each other because our love goes beyond what's easy. Our love goes into the very hope that we have that's in Jesus alone. We get to do this every week. What a beautiful joy. So, as we look at this, as we consider these at least main themes, now let's look at the ideas of the signs of a Christian life from Paul here to the Thessalonians. He doesn't just limit himself to describing what good ministry or genuine Christian ministry should look like. In chapters 4 and 5, he writes and tells them the effect of a genuine ministry and what it does on our lives. So chapters 4 and 5 really emphasize the effect of genuine ministry on our lives. As you'll recall from earlier, these exhortations sandwich the core of the letter. The section of the coming of the Lord at the end of chapter 4 And so when we should be thinking of these exhortations, especially in light of how should we live in light of Jesus' return. So Paul begins this section in 4 verses 1 and 2 by saying, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so and more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul follows it with, guess what? Seven points. He had seven points about genuine ministry. And now he's going to have seven points about the effect or the, the signs of a Christian life. The first, he says, is pursue sexual purity. He did not miss a beat. He jumped right to it, didn't he? (laughs) This may not be exactly what comes to my mind first, but it should be one of those top things that comes to our mind, thinking of living in purity. Just after he tells them to please God... He then spends several sentences repeatedly and specifically telling them to avoid sexual sin. Drawing a clear link between the two, he writes in chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust, just like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The connection between obeying God and maintaining sexual purity may have actually been a new idea to the Thessalonians. This may have been a new idea to them. Sexual promiscuity was even more accepted and practiced in ancient pagan worlds 
than in our world today. It is crazy to think about. Maybe we're coming to see some of the light of what was in the pagan world with the sexual revolution that is of the day. So it was worth Paul's time to emphasize this point to these Thessalonians. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't treat sexual sin as something private or something that's a victimless crime. He emphasizes no one transgress and wrong his brother. Sexual sin always involves others, including God. And that's why it says in verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. So sometimes we think, you know, like think of this, right? Think of the LGBTQ plus movement, okay? If we were to think of the sexual revolution from the 1960s all the way to where we are today, the 60s and 70s, promiscuity was kind of like, again, on the rise, right? The hippie movement, very sexualized drug emphasis, right? And then homosexuality started to rise in the late 70s again into the 80s and kind of like stayed at this level where it was talked about. But there was a common saying or at least a common mentality. What they do in their bedroom is their own business, right? It doesn't have anything to do with us. But that's totally not the truth. They're saying, oh, it's just a private matter between one and two. It's not private. The idea of privacy is that there's individuality. There's no individuality with this. There's always another person involved. And therefore, when there's multiplicities of people involved, there's always other people that are then made part of what's going on. Now, that could be not a super solid steel beam of some sort of philosophical idea to push against. But we can't avoid it either. We have to recognize it. That often sexuality is not just something that is individualized. It does indeed involve others. So that's the first thing he talks about. And we could spend a lot of time talking about this. I I highly recommend, if you haven't read this book, uh, Carl Truman just wrote one. There's two. One's really thick. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you like audiobooks, it's a great audiobook. Um, And then he wrote a shorter piece on it called Strange New World, where he basically talks about not only the sexual revolution, but the rise of self-idolatry through the world and how selfishness and individuality has become what is ultimate to the person's thinking. So really great resource, definitely at least the short volume, Strange New World. If you can uh, like chew down and maybe sit on some like deeper, harder, more academic writing, uh, the, rise and mo- uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is is very good. <clears throat> okay. So first, we should be pursuing sexual purity. Second, we should live lives of brotherly love. Brotherly love. Okay. Verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that is indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. It seems a little crazy that we have to tell people to love other people. 
right? But this is something that God commands to us. He commands to us to love others, right? right? Think of the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Right? So we need to love other people because God commands it, but Paul commends it and then encourages more of it. So we don't get to a point where we go, I've got brotherly love nailed, right? You can always love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Specifically, these are instructions for us in Christ to other people who are in Christ. We can do more of this. We can be better at loving each other. Third is respectability. Respectability. Paul wants the Thessalonians to live in such a way as to earn the respect of others. Chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Notice what he says? Walk quietly among others. The point is not that Paul wants Christians to be focused on polishing their reputation. This is not a popularity contest. No, it is in some ways precisely by doing the opposite of what the world would lead to popularity and success by striving to lead a quiet and mind your own business kind of life that we will not win popularity but genuine respect for the godly way of life we follow. You do not do this so that others will think well of you, but so that the gospel will be commended. So far from concerning, or from, far from the coming of the Lord inciting panic, it should spur us on to continue to be faithful in respectable and quiet ways. I, I, I struggle with the world that I see right now. Because people just want to so badly be heard for what they're saying. It's like, I want to stand for truth. Here I am, standing for truth. I've got this. Uh, I've got the thing to say. But sometimes people are just darn fools when they say it. (laughs) Isn't that the case? It's like, hey, you've got something really good to say. Say it with respectability. Be somebody who you look at. Actually, I was laughing this morning. I was sharing with Rachel. I I saw this news quote. Have you guys heard it? There's this Republican candidate who's running for uh, the national convention. His name is Vivek Ramshaway, or something like that. Ramshawi. I think that's his name. Ramshawi. The key quote I saw in this article, right? So I go to allsides.com. They show you all sorts of like the biases of different news channels. I think it's kind of interesting to look at the different perspectives. And uh, the key quote they highlighted about this guy and how he's gaining popularity. His quote about Trump, he said, my good friend Donald Trump, right? So he hasn't like bashed him, but he said, here's what happens. It's just reality that 30% of the population goes into some sort of psychiatry that they need when he's in office. (laughs) And his political motivation, his drive is this. He's like, at least if we're in office, that won't be the case. (laughs) I just thought, what a motto to go by. Hey, he's a guy, but so am I. All of you go crazy when he's in office, but I'm not him. (laughs) Right? Like, what a selling point. <laughs> and I just thought, man, if that's your, your campaign slogan, you're in trouble, dude. 
But apparently people are actually like buying into that. They're like, oh yeah, no, that's true. People lose their mind when Trump's in office, but he's not Trump. <laughs> like, this is the way that this is going to go. The next political season. It's like, you're not this guy. You're not Biden. You're not Trump. I'm like, oh my goodness. This is literally what we have come to. This is so sad. <laughs> All right. Um, so we've, we've talked about three, respectability. Fourth is being awake to God. Being awake to God. Being awake to God. Having detoured to talk directly about the second coming, Paul returns to his list of exhortations in chapter 5, 4 through 8. He says, Brothers, you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us live sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. We are to be awake to God. We're not to be asleep, but awake, alert, self-controlled. Paul wants Christians not to be dulled by this world, deceived by the attractive appearance of its passing pleasures or blind to the realities that God has made known in this world. No, we are to be spiritually awake, focused on God's truth, and inwardly directed to the truth that we do, we know but do not see yet. So that's fourth, being awake to God. Fifth is encouraging others. Encouraging others. <clears throat> He goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always see to do good to one another and to everyone. We are to encourage everyone. Paul especially calls us to give encouragement in two particular cases. First, he says, give encouragement to your pastors and elders. Pastors and elders. They work hard to be wise and godly spiritual shepherds for you. So do we encourage them? Do we tell them that we appreciate them? The second way he tells us to encourage is to encourage the weak. Weakness is often a temptation to discouragement. So Paul tells Christians to be especially diligent in encouraging those who lack strength in various ways. I wonder if you know someone in this situation that you could encourage even this week. Is there anyone that you could encourage who's struggling with some weakness? Sixth, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians and us to live a God-centered life. So God-centered life. That's become something that's been quite popular in sayings lately. It's gospel-centered or God-centered, Bible-centered. In in chapter 5, he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
How can you be joyful always? If you center your life on God, regardless of what happens at work, regardless of what happens at home, regardless of what happens at church, you can be joyful. Well, how do we make God the center of our lives so that by the Spirit's power, we we do not or we do pray without ceasing. How do we give thanks in all circumstances? It starts with remembering the good news of the grace that we have received. As Paul says in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us, so that we, whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. So then there's a seventh, which is living a discerning life. Discerning life. Living a discerning life. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every sort of evil. These are timeless exhortations applicable in every circumstance. Test everything, right? That's a good exhortation. Life is short. Don't waste it on stupid evil things. <laughs> that's, that's a short way of saying it. Don't waste it on stupid evil things. Think carefully before you believe something. Do something. Say something. Promise something. Think carefully. Evil is everywhere. And if we are to avoid it, we must pray for discernment. <clears throat> All right, and our last section here we're going to talk through is on the second coming. There are lots of questions that come to eschatology, okay? just want to show you what Thessalonians highlights, because sometimes people take this and say, this exact event has to happen this way. There are two main truths that we see from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Here's the first. You ready for it? Jesus will return. That's main truth number one. When it comes to eschatology, the end times, how is this second coming going to happen? Number one, if you're a Christian, you have to realize Jesus is coming. You have to hold true to the fact that Jesus will return. He calls this the day of the Lord. Chapter four, verses 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Jesus himself taught that he would return. And we see more images of his return throughout the book of Revelation. Scripture is clear and consistent. Jesus is returning. That's point number one. The second point to think about with this is that we will all witness his return. We will all witness his return. Evidently, the Thessalonians were discouraged because some of them had died and others thought that the ones who died would miss out on Jesus's return. And notice what the text says here, right? The dead will rise first. What is that about? That's about witnessing, seeing the fact that Jesus is going to return. So we will all see it. There is not going to be an eye that misses the, the return of Jesus. Third, when we think of the doctrine of eschatology or the second coming of Jesus, we should be an encouragement 
and a prompting to hope and holiness for Christians. So when we have conversations about this, we want to be encouraging and exhorting to hope and holiness. Okay? Not demeaning, not discouraging, but encouraging others. Jesus is returning. Every eye is going to see. And the encouragement isn't just general. It's encouragement to have hope. He's faithful to his promises and live holy. How you live matters. Fourth, really big one that we, we, we need to emphasize. We don't know when Jesus will return and we shouldn't try to figure it out. <laughs> okay? We don't know when and we shouldn't try to figure it out. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't study eschatology. We shouldn't know all the key details of premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism, the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. Those are all good things, but here's the emphasis. What did Jesus say? Think of Acts chapter 1. The disciples say, are you going to come and set up the kingdom? His response is, only the Father knows the hour. So Jesus is going to return, but ultimately, when he returns, is up to God in his timing. And he tells him, Paul tells the Thessalonians in in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, to not be caught up in speculation about this. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like what? Like a thief in the night. It's going to take us by surprise. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon the people. And labor pains will come upon like a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. We cannot and do not know the day or the hour of Jesus' return. So we should not listen to anyone who claims to have figured it out. We should, however, remain in eager expectation and preparedness, leading godly and sober lives so that we will be ready when Jesus returns. Isn't it amazing how practical all this gets? Live this way. This is what a genuine Christian ministry looks like. This is what it looks like to be a genuine Christian. Here's the truth of the second coming. Jesus is coming. It's going to bring hope. We need to encourage each other. We shouldn't doubt this. We shouldn't speculate about it. Praise God. He's coming again. First Thessalonians in a nutshell. All right. Next week, we'll talk about second Thessalonians. Let's pray, and then we will worship the Lord together with the other saints as we gather together here today. Father, we thank you that we have hope in Jesus, that our hope is not trivial, that it's not meaningless, that it's not rooted in something that we can hold on to. Rather, we have a great object in our hope in our salvation. That is the object of the Lord Jesus, who is a firm anchor, a solid rock, He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty. He is everlasting. In Him there is life. And so we come to worship you today with our brothers and sisters. May we worship you in hope, in expectation. May you prepare us to live out your promises, your commandments for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.